Wednesday, April 18th. This is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro, Jeff Fisher, from Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Maker. Gentlemen, good to see you. Howdy, Chris. Busy day. A lot going on this week. Uh, what with earnings from Intel and Halliburton. We've got the week in rogue CEOs, but we are going to start uh, with the news that broke late yesterday, uh, and that is Warren Buffett announcing on Tuesday that he's been diagnosed with stage one prostate cancer. Uh, it is not life-threatening. Uh, Buffett said he's going to be undergoing two months of daily radiation treatments starting in mid-July. He says he feels great. Obviously, we wish him well. Uh, but, Joe, I'll start with you. Uh, cancer is one of those jarring words. What did you think when you first heard the news? Well, it definitely you know rattled my cage a little bit. But once you start digging into what's actually there, you realize that Buffett is not at risk. Uh, he says as much, but when you dig around and do some sleuthing on data, there's a lot more to back that up. I talked to Brian Orelli, who's our healthcare expert at the Pool PhD, and essentially he showed me data that says Buffett essentially has the same odds of dying from prostate cancer as someone who does not have prostate cancer right. because they caught it early and it's localized. So that's the good news. Um, Jeff, what do you think? Well, I think the reason he announced this at all was to to cut off any rumors that would result in as he goes to get radiation in July. Everyone's going to notice that he's in and out of doctors and whatnot. So yeah. by announcing early that this is what it is and this is how not to not to under not to downplay it too much, but how minor it is and how manageable it is, he's he's doing the right thing early, and you got to commend him for that too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and well, Jason, as we've talked about, you know, the whole notion that the market hates uncertainty. I mean, Buffett is uh, is certainly well aware of, I think, the role that he holds uh, as sort of the elder statesman of capitalism in the stock market in America. And he had to have taken that into account. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, he's our ambassador, more or less, and I, you know, he he certainly knows that. And you know, at eighty-one years old, it's it's not terribly surprising news. I mean. We all have to go somehow, and something's going to happen. Cancer is one of those things that just affects every one of us in some way, shape, or form. And so Joe's very right there. Prostate cancer caught at this stage is is very, uh, you know, what, 100% really, you know, chance of recovery there. And, you know, I, I go back to just Arnold Palmer. I mean, uh, Arnold Palmer was diagnosed with the same thing back in 1997. And you look at him today, and he's just he's strong as ever. He was walking up the 18th fairway at Augusta this year. Uh, so, you know, catching it early was, was huge. I think he's getting out in front of this, announcing it. Uh, you know, I got to commend him on that. Wish that's, him well. That's true too. Uh, some eighty percent of men above eighty have some beginnings of prostate cancer, so he's far from alone. Uh, and yet, um, I would be remiss if I did not mention that uh, part of the narrative today, at least anyway, Joe, is the notion of uh, sort of uh, an, an increased discussion about who's going to replace Buffett eventually, whenever he is no longer the CEO. Um, two of the names, we've mentioned these names before, uh, Matt Rose, um, who runs Burlington Northern, uh, and Ajit Jain uh, on the investment side. Um, is, there, is there one that you think is better suited than the other? Is there, is there someone else who you think is in the mix there? And how does temperament factor into all of this? Because um, this is something Mac, our producer, and I were talking about beforehand. Is you know you can have people who are great at their own divisions within Berkshire, but Buffett has said that you know once he mastered his temperament, that was that was a, a great turning point for him as an investor. Yeah, well, running a railroad is different than running a conglomerate that happens to also own a railroad. So it's going to be tough for Buffett to make that choice. I think it's really important that he 
and he's a very strong-willed guy, so I'm not concerned about this, but I think it's important that he resist all the calls for him to name a successor. Mm-hmm. I know that's been played up lately, and I think this is really going to bring it to light. I think at the annual meeting in a couple of weeks, it's going to be the topic that we all hear about. But there's very little upside in Berkshire actually coming out and naming a specific person. And one reason is Buffett actually, while he does have cancer, again, remember, this is not likely to be an issue, big picture. So he's still probably has several years ahead of him running the company. That's more time for him to evaluate candidates. Uh, Matt Rose hasn't been around very long. Mm-hmm. It'd be great if he had another four or five years to see how he does. We will move on. Intel's first quarter earnings fell 13% as spending on marketing and research rose. Uh, Jeff, Intel is a pro recommendation. What would you make of the quarter? That's right. Intel's first quarter was as the company expected with healthy revenue and earnings. And management continues to believe revenue will grow by high single digits this year, uh, with much of that coming in the second half of the year. Intel has been, Chris, the best-performing Dow Jones stock the last 12 months, up some 42%. And it is, as you mentioned, Motley Fool Pro's largest holding. So I'm happy with that, but that's backward-looking. Looking Looking forward, I I still believe the company will continue to perform because it has outstanding management, uh, outstanding manufacturing capabilities, and leading technology that is moving it into new markets, even as those markets change and keep growing. Uh, we were talking uh, before the taping about uh, an area where Intel really does not dominate, and that's the mobile market. You've got companies like Arm Holdings that mm-hmm. are that are, are really uh, dominating in a way that Intel hasn't. Uh, looking forward, Intel has got its first smartphone coming out. How big a hit does that need to be? Yeah, this week it needs to be a, at least a modest hit, like get some attention for how well it performs, how fast it is, how cool it stays, of course, all those sorts of things on a technological basis. On a consuming, on, a, on the consumer side, it doesn't need to be a big hit and probably won't be. But the point is Intel is debuting in many other uh, smartphones this year, including from uh, Motorola and uh, Orange in France and a few others. And in the long run, I think they're going to continue to take mobile market share because they do offer technology that's ahead of the competition and they can offer it at a, a competitive price. And it's Intel. You, you, their manufacturing is second to none. Joe? Well, they'd better. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I would say the big risk here is that they are behind the curve on mobile. The ARM architecture is way out in front in terms of popularity with manufacturers. And the real risk here isn't just competition in mobile. It's the encroachment of their you know, core turf of desktops from the mobile side. So if you start having manufacturers move upstream from mobile using ARM onto Windows, the next version of Windows, Windows 8, will be running available on an ARM architecture. So somebody like a Qualcomm, for example, could be making chips and processors that are actually running uh, Windows on PCs. Now, whether or not that you know, gains traction to be seen, but I think that is where the real serious risk lies. Jeff? Yeah, I think Intel, of course, is well aware of that, and they're ramping, for instance, they're ramping their 22 nanometer uh, processors right now in three new factories. That's their Ivy Bridge microprocessor. Meanwhile, the competitors are not even up to speed on perfecting 32 nanometer technology, and Intel's already looking forward to the next generation about a year and a half, two years out. Yeah, but I mean, 10 nanometers, I mean, that's not that big, is it? (laughs) 
I'm going to leave. Are you with that, Jeff? <laughs> so I think the other thing that Intel has going for it is, is manufacturers of these products are, are getting more particular about what they want. They don't just want hardware. They want it to work with software. They want it to have security. They want it to have uh, location services on the chip along mm-hmm. with other sensors. And Intel can let you do that. They can help you with the design and then the manufacturing as well. So what about, I mean, squaring off these two companies in terms of their stock over the next few years, ARM Holdings, Intel? Jeff, I'm assuming you're going to stick with the home team. You're going to stick with Intel. I would stick with Intel. 3% yield, steady free cash flow, steady share buybacks, and it trades at about 12 times earnings. And I know the concerns that Intel is cyclical and near the top of a cycle, but management keeps saying that's the, the market's much larger now and demand is spread out around the world and over time. ARM Holdings, on the other hand, expensive, and uh, they have not generated that much by way of net income, even even during this great run they've had. Joe, you agree with that? Yeah, I'd go with door number three with Qualcomm. I think they have a great treasure trove of IP, so they collect all these fat licensing fees on every smartphone that's sold, but they're also selling a lot of processors and benefiting from the smartphone revolution. There was a door number three? <laughs> I just made it up out of thin air. <laughs> I like surprise doors. Halliburton's first quarter earnings up 23%, and shares were up more than 4% this morning. Jason Moser, you just yesterday you were talking up Halliburton. Hey, now. you got to be happy with the quarter. You insert right. shady right. joke here. <laughs> no, I mean, that's yeah, it was a great quarter. I mean, uh, Halliburton is a company that I had been looking at for uh, a, a few uh, weeks now uh, before I added it to my Rising Star portfolio last month, and it's you know, it's one of those companies that it has such a tremendous reach around the world, but has been killed uh, because of natural gas prices being so low and the the continued you know the stringing out of the the Gulf oil spill liability uh, arguments there. And so we have a company here that yeah, they're pulling back on their natural gas operations, and a lot of those uh, rigs are being moved over into the more oil rich plays. And so we're seeing a little bit of uh, revenue depression there, and some and some effect on the margins as well as they move these crews and that equipment over to the more the more oil rich plays. But you know you still have a company here that is focused also very very much on the international side of things here, and they're also working hard to really streamline the operations. They actually have this program called Chris. I'm not lying. Frack of the future. And so if it's <laughs> I love it already. Fracking now sounds really cool. But it they're realizing uh you know they're realizing some material savings from this program which is encouraging. And you know I mean they they did have to set aside about 300 million dollars this past quarter for and I'll quote from the call we have determined that we can no longer conclude that a probable loss associated with the multi-district litigation in regard to the Macondo spill is zero. So they are at least out of the the stage of of thinking that they're not going to get away you know without paying something. But still, most of the court decisions at this point and the opinions have placed most of the liability here on BP's shoulders. And, and so I think whatever Halliburton, you know, whatever li- liability they bear, I, I think is well priced into the stock today, even more so. And at 10 and a half times earnings, you know, the stock is still a steal. Joe? I love legal risk. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is because most investors don't want to deal with having to do the legwork and taking on the risk of a big lawsuit hitting a stock or just the uncertainty. And consistently what you see is that legal risk is overblown and what you can find is a big discount on those shares. And over time, you spread your bets across those and you'll do very well. And I think Halliburton fits nicely into that box. Uh, We'll get to legal risk in energy companies more in just a second. But Jason, just quickly to uh, round out on Halliburton, 
Um, what's what's sort of the big opportunity for this company? Is it uh, something internationally? Is it uh, a division that you know in, uh, already within the company in terms of whether it's natural gas or oil? I mean, their position is the, is the the largest uh, fracking company, the fracking operator in the world. I think it's going to continue to serve as an advantage. But they're also you can see they're ramping up a lot of spending for deep water applications. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, other other drillers like Atwood Oceanix and Sea Drill are, are continuing to ramp up their expenditures as they see. Uh, uh, you know more utilization coming in that deep water drilling environment, and then you know they also just continue to focus on the field redevelopment uh, segment where you know there are a million and a half uh, wells around the world, natural gas and oil wells that continue to need to be maintained in some capacity, and and we have more of those wells coming online every year, and so this is just straight up Halliburton's alley, and and so they they acknowledge this it's it's not the sexiest side of business, but it's really profitable and it's going to keep them busy for a long time to come. Sticking with energy stocks, Reuters reported this morning that Aubrey McClendon, the CEO of Chesapeake Energy, has borrowed as much as $1.1 billion over the last three years against his stake in thousands of company wells. And I'm quoting now, a move that analysts, academics, and attorneys who reviewed loan documents say raises the potential for conflicts of interest. Uh, McClendon, uh, for his part, says it does not represent a conflict of interest. Joe, Wall Street seems to disagree because shares of Chesapeake Energy down about 10% this morning. A lot of investors love Chesapeake because it looks really cheap against the value of its assets. It has a lot of great valuable assets out there, and the assets are leases for oil and gas fields here in the U.S. Unfortunately, and I, I don't want to get a sued, but I'll just say as much as I can about McLennan without doing that. Come on, Joe, get a sued. I don't have a lot of trust in him, and no one else seems to either, and that's completely understandable. Chesapeake goes back and forth all the time on capital allocation decisions. They'll say, we're going to fund this project with debt, we're going to do it internally. They bounce back and forth, they jerk Wall Street around, and this is just another example of how these guys don't take outside shareholders or disclosures seriously. When you're talking about investing in a company that, on an asset-centric play, the way to get value out of that is the management team that's going to unlock that value. And when you can't trust the people to do it, or you think they're ripping you off, our warrants are chief legal officer, yet, and I think I'm okay, you know, you got to take that seriously, and that's why the stock's off today. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? Well, management problems at Chesapeake have been going on for for years, for so long that you can actually rehash some of the same problems again, and it becomes news again because we, this has been known before. We've talked before about the antique maps that uh, the Mc, maps, McClendon the art, the, but this is a case <laughs> and that, the bailout. He bought the yeah. in, in his defense, McClendon bought back the antique maps that he had sold well, to the company. Good for him. This is part of his, <laughs> part of the the company's founders participation program. Whereas in his case, he gets a two point five percent interest in every well that's drilled, meaning he gets 2.5% of the cash flow, but he needs to front 2.5% of the cost of that. Now, he's using the collateral of the cash flow stream from these wells. Uh, he's using that as a collateral for this $1.1 billion in, 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 in loans. But this isn't new. It's, it's like this, money this, out of thin happened, air. It's, happened, it's, been, it's bubbled up years in the past as well, but now it's, it's come out again, and it's apparently new again. But where there's smoke, there's fire. Management hasn't changed here for years. And yet, Joe, you wrote on Twitter today, if you were ever to buy Chesapeake, 
today is the day. I do agree what? with I look. I <laughs> if, have there's the if if if, if, if you were ever going to buy shares. That's the of problem Chelsea. with Twitter. You, you say things you wouldn't otherwise say. Oh, I stand by that. <laughs> Can tweet. you like all 140 it, characters it, italicize it? <laughs> Look, I don't trust these guys. I wouldn't want this guy babysitting for me. I wouldn't lend him my lawnmower. But if you were going to buy Chesapeake, the stock has been hammered today. Natural gas, I think, has big upside. Chesapeake does have great assets and a plan for unlocking that value. And they have a lot of oil assets, too, that are very valuable. Again, I'm not a big Aubrey fan, but if you're going to do it, today's the day. Okay, I'll agree with Joe there if... But you know the old saying. I mean, you trust this guy about as far as I can throw him, and I'm assuming I can throw him about as far as I can throw this table. <laughs> uh, and it's a big table. It's really big and bulky. It's a big table, people. Perception is reality here, and, and regardless of whether or not there is technically nothing wrong with what he did, the perception is that, dude, why did you even wait three years to report this? So big problems. Don't trust him. I mean, I, I just don't even see any reason to consider Chesapeake as an investment, no matter how cheap it is compared to its assets. That said, what Joe said is right. If you're going to consider it, today's the day. We'll close out on the stock in a minute. But uh, just, you know, just to be contrarian, Jeff, what's the nicest thing you can say about Aubrey McClendon? Well, he was born on Bastille Day. And so <laughs> you've done your research. There we go. Jason? So I was getting a haircut the other day, and I saw a lot of gray falling off. And it just kind of made me think of McClendon. With all the stuff that he's done, he seems like he could be kind of a vain guy. But he's not dyeing his hair. He pulls the gray hair off nicely. I'm impressed that he's he does not pull dyeing it off his hair. nicely. Yeah. Joe? He's Kate Upton's uncle. And just the fact that he's related in any way to Kate Upton's existence, for Kate, this I am Kate thankful. Upton, the supermodel on the cover of this year's Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? Yes. That Kate Upton? Yes. There's a photo of them at a, a what is it? The, uh, the Oklahoma, Oklahoma, he, he owns the Oklahoma City Thunder. Yeah. I don't know if I'm to look at him with more admiration or her with more disdain. Yeah, that's the problem. All right, let's close out on the stock then. Uh, the last two energy stocks we just debated uh, and discussed, Halliburton, Chesapeake, over the next five years. Joe? I'm a big Halliburton fan. Jason? Yeah, Halliburton, no question. Ooh, MasterCard. <laughs> it's a door, door number three! three. No, no, you can't, you can't go door number three to... to you know, the, not the even fine. in the same realm. <laughs> I was going to say, mean, like, say Panera Bread I'll, give, I'll give you door number three if it's in this sector. <laughs> I'm not giving you door number three if you're going to a financial services uh, company. I'd probably go to Cameco and, and bet on uranium. That's a good one. Actually. All right. Let's, uh, let's close out with uh, some more fun CEO news. Uh, Citigroup shareholders rejected a pay package for CEO Vikram Pandit. He was set to receive $15 million. The vote is non-binding, but Citigroup's chairman says he takes the vote seriously. 55% voted against Pandit's compensation. Uh, and uh, yeah, seriously, let's Your give, count, people. Let's give a good. round of applause. Uh, the quote here CEOs deserve good pay, but there's good pay and there's obscene pay. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the shareholders coming to the table with a fun statement as well. Um, this is kind of heartening, isn't it? To see shareholders Certainly. stepping up and saying, you know what, we've looked at your track record as a CEO over the last year, over the last four and a half years, for as long as Pandit's been CEO of Citigroup. And boy, the, the, the stock's just not doing well under his <laughs> tenure. I guess that's putting it mildly. Understatement you know. of the day. <laughs> exactly. Um, what do you make of this, Joe? Is this hopefully a sign of things to come with more shareholders stepping up and, and casting their vote? Well, there's a guy who's a total joker. It would be ridiculous for this thing to have <laughs> You were worried about Back along the lines but... of being sued. <laughs> I yeah. think I can say a joker. I didn't call him <laughs> something right, illegal. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, no, I think everyone would agree with that. It is extremely rare for Wall Street to turn on itself like this. And that's basically what happened here it was presumably there was kind of a, you know, a backdoor discussion with a lot of shareholders. It's not a conspiracy. Institutional shareholders. This isn't, this isn't 50, this isn't individuals. Right. This isn't mom and pop investors right. making this vote. It's informed Wall Street money managers who just really got fed up. And it's, again, it's very unusual for them to kind of turn on one another like this. So the fact that they did really speaks volumes about how unhappy they are and how little everyone thinks of the job band it's done. Jason? Yeah, point of what Joe said there. I mean, the, the institutional shareholders, California Public Employees Retirement System, better known as CalPERS, is one of those big institutional shareholders that got behind this vote and I think played a big part in it. And it's also, I think, worth noting that CalPERS is sorely underfunded at this point and tremendously bankrupt and really facing a lot we of can only bail so, out so many things at a time to see yeah. them kind of get in there and say hey look man all right enough is enough was was encouraging yeah and this is why citibank will listen that was good to see as well they came out with a release today saying we're listening we're gonna we're going to fix this so let's see if they do all right jeff fisher. i mean they won't <laughs> <laughs> optimist jeff fisher jason moser Joe Maker. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. thanks. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Mm-hmm.